So Genesis 13, I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. So hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Well, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing and preaching of it. Heavenly Father, we ask that your word will be in our hearts and our lives like an anchor that stabilizes us and holds us so that whatever currents and winds and waves of culture come, we can stand firm in solid truth. Cause your word to renew and shape how we think and how we live so that we can grow into the maturity of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to start with a pop quiz. Which statement, and this is a rhetorical pop quiz, in case you're used to group participation, which statement do you think is most accurate? Statement one, if I had more, I would certainly have less problems than I do now. If I had more money, more house, more gadgets, more toys, my problems would be less. Statement one. Now, statement two, if I had more, I know that I would just have different problems than I do now. If I had more money, more house, more gadgets, more toys, my problems would just be different. More responsibilities, more to take care of. Now, here's a follow-up question. Which one of those statements do you wish in your heart was most accurate and most true? See, what this pop quiz is intended to reveal is that we have at least one problem, if not two problems. On the one hand, we struggle with buying into the lie that more stuff equals less struggles. It's the mirage of materialism that is constantly cast before our culture that people are chasing after all the time and sometimes we get swept up into the fury of searching for that mirage. On the other hand, even if we know intellectually 
and biblically that more stuff does not equal less struggles. There is a part of us that thinks, well, yes, but wouldn't it be nice to find out by experience that it didn't? As the internet meme states, I know money can't buy happiness, but I'd rather be crying in a Lamborghini. (laughs) It's a real internet meme. This is how I prepare for my sermons. (laughs) At times, we falsely conclude that prosperity is an inherent blessing that inherently comes with benefits. That's the false conclusion that we often make. But we're going to see in this story in the life of Abraham is that prosperity often comes attached with struggles, trials, struggles that test our faith and challenge our spiritual maturity. In other words, times of prosperity are as much a test of your faith as are times of adversity. They're different kinds of tests, certainly different kinds of tests, but they are both tests of our faith and our maturity nonetheless. So here's how these two things fit together, the prosperity and the adversity in Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, 10, Abraham was put by God through a test of adversity, a lack of resources. Look at Genesis 12, 10. Abraham's in the land. He's received the promises. First thing confronting him, famine in the land. So Abraham looks to Egypt, heads to Egypt because the famine was severe in the land. So it's a test of adversity that Abraham faced and let the record show that he he failed it miserably. I thought, you know, This thing called Valentine's Day, I guess, is tomorrow. I thought last week's text would have been a perfect Valentine's Day text for what Abraham did to his wife. Sorry. It was a joke, okay? Sorry, honey. That's a test of adversity, a lack of resources. What does Abraham do? He he tries to, out of fear and doubt, do what self-preservation would do, like look out for his own skin. Well, even in and through that failure, God displays his faithfulness, his undeserved kindness, And Abraham comes out of that failing test with an abundance of resources. Look at Genesis 13, 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Goes to Egypt looking for resources. In a sense, he comes out with them. And now he has an abundance of resources. But this is going to be another test of his faith. And essentially, the the word for severe in Genesis 12, 10 and the word for rich in Genesis 13:2 are the same word in the original language. The, the point is being that as the, as the land was rich in famine, now Abraham is rich in resources. Two different kinds of tests. So God's brought Abraham through a test of adversity, and now he brings him into a test of prosperity. This is what you did when you had nothing. Now let's see what you do when you have much. Well, through these events in Abraham's life, we're going to learn this. When God supplies us with an abundance, he's not only displaying to us his undeserved generosity, but he is also training us how to properly handle the test of prosperity. When God gives us much, it's not just him displaying how he provides greatly, but he's also helping us learn to handle the test of prosperity. So how does God teach us through Abraham, who has so much, to handle the test of prosperity? We're going to look at a number of lessons. The first one is, to properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to remember the provider of all of our stuff. To to know how to handle the test of what we have when we have much, we always need to remember who has provided it. Look at Genesis 13, 1 and 2. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev, and he was rich. 
livestock, in silver, in gold. How did Abraham come to acquire all these riches? He, he went to Egypt looking to provide for himself because he had nothing in the land. There was, a, there was a famine. But he decides out of doubt and fear for his safety to lie about who his wife is so that he can save his own skin. And it should have turned out very poorly for him. It is amazing that he got out of Egypt without a scratch on him from Pharaoh. Not just that he got out of there without a scratch on him, but he exits Egypt with extreme wealth. Everything Abraham did should have led to it saying Abraham left Egypt with absolutely nothing and an angry wife. (laughs) And yet he walks away with an abundance. So I want to look at four ways that lying helps you build wealth. Okay? That's not the point. The point is not look at Abraham and see what you can get away with when you lie. The point is look at God and see how gracious he is to Abraham in spite of Abraham. Look at God and see how faithful he is to Abraham despite how faithless Abraham is to God. If, if you look at Genesis 12:10 into Genesis 13, and you think, I wonder what I can get away with. You have missed the point. You're looking at the wrong place. Look at God in his grace, in his faithfulness. The point about this story is that Abraham is rich, not because of the stuff he owns, but because of the God who he is in relationship with. Abraham has a God who supplies all his needs, who is so good to him. And it's interesting how God orchestrated things. God so masterfully and wisely orchestrated things so that when Abraham looks around at all he has, every possession to his name, he will not be able to take credit for any of it at all. Not for a second. He will not be able to look and say, look how well I've done for myself. Instead, he'll have to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, even to sinful creatures like me here below. That's what Abraham would have to say. There's something we need to recognize about having plenty, being well off and full of resources that tempts and entices us to think we earned it, we deserved it, we've done pretty good for ourselves. I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that wealth is inherently bad. Money and possessions are never identified in the Bible as inherently evil, as inherently good, or even as inherently neutral. When the human heart interacts with money and possessions, it goes one of two directions, either to honor the Lord with them or to make them Lord, as it were. We need to understand that when we mix stuff with the human heart, there are certain temptations that we need to be on guard against. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is preparing Israel to enter the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of abundance. And Moses, like a good pastor, knows when the sinful human heart meets in abundance, certain temptations set in. So he gives them these two warnings. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest you see all that you have and think, who needs God when you have this? And beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Be careful about the type of possessive pronouns you use when you look at your stuff. In prosperity, we are always tempted 
with thoughts of self-sufficiency. Who needs God when you have all this? And self-promotion. Look how well I've done for myself. Well, what's the weapon of defense against such temptation? It's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, 18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth. It is he who supplies you with whatever you have. And remember what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 25. God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God owns everyone and everything everyone owns. If you take any cent you have to your name, any possession that you have in your house, and you trace it back far enough, it will lead you to God who has provided all things to you. So what is your mindset regarding your money? Is it look how well I've done? Or perhaps look at how much better I need to do for myself? Or is it all that I have needed, thy hand has provided? Or how do you view your possessions? Is it look at all this stuff I've accumulated for myself? Or is it look at what God has entrusted me to be a good steward of? Is your mindset that of an owner? Or is it that of a steward who is grateful to God for what he has supplied? To handle the test of prosperity, we need to remember the provider of all of our stuff. Second lesson. If we're going to handle the test of prosperity, we need to learn from our failures when we lack stuff. If we're going to handle prosperity, we need to learn from when we fail in adversity. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Abraham journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. So right after God gives the promises initially in Genesis 12 to Abraham, Abraham builds an altar there. He's got nothing to his name. He's left everything behind. But he builds an altar to commemorate the promises of God and to worship the God who has given him those promises. The altar is this this memorial reminding Abraham of what God said and that God alone is worthy of worship. And this is the very place that Abraham journeys toward when he leaves Egypt. He's staring at this altar that he built probably months, months ago. And this is the place he's come. Why does Abraham go there after leaving Egypt? What's, why does he return to this specific site? I think Abraham chose this destination because he is both repenting and learning of his failure from that time of adversity that he just went through. When the famine hit, he realizes that I turn from the promises of God. I turn from trusting in the Lord and entrusting myself to him. I doubted, and in my doubt, I was afraid. And in my fear, I was given to self-preservation, and I did what I should not have done. And so now, in his turning from the Lord, he's now returning to the Lord. He's coming back to the place that reminds him of the God who makes and keeps his promises, of the God who is worthy of his worship and his dependence and all reliance. And he's casting himself back on the Lord and clinging to those promises once again. And the lesson here for us is if if we don't learn from times of adversity, especially from our failures in adversity, it will be that much harder for us to be able to handle times of prosperity and abundance. To put it more simply, if we don't learn from our failures when we have little, we will not be able to handle the success of having much. Abraham could have walked out of Egypt And he could have thought to himself, 
you know, that wasn't my brightest moment, but it didn't turn out half bad for me. On to the next thing. Or, well, if that's what he would have thought, he would not have learned from his adversity how to now handle his prosperity that the Lord had supplied him with. Or he could have walked out of Egypt and thought to himself, I am just a miserable failure. How could I have been so foolish and so sinful? How can I face the Lord and admit what I've done? I've turned from him. How can I turn back to him? If that's what Abraham would have done with his failure, he would have not learned from his adversity to now handle his abundance, his prosperity. In times of adversity, whether it comes in the form of temptation to sin or circumstantial struggles or hardships, we are going to fail at times. We're going to turn our backs on the Lord. We're going to act faithlessly. We're going to doubt. We're going to go into self-preservation mode. But the important question is, how do you respond when you fail in times of adversity? Do you merely look at the damage and say, you know what? It could have been worse. Let's, let's just move on. Let's forget about it. Or do you look at yourself in despair and say, you know what? I failed once again. I guess I'm never going to be anything more than just a failure. Or do you do what Abraham did? You, you see your sin and yet you know that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and that even in our failure, God always says, return to me. Return to me with all your heart. Rend me your heart and not your garments and I will restore you. I will renew you. When we learn from our failures in times of adversity and our times of lack, we will be better able and better equipped to handle when God supplies us with much. So to handle the test of prosperity, we need to learn from our failures when we lack. Well, third, to properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to always acknowledge the inadequacy of our stuff. Always remember that your stuff is insufficient to do a number of things. Look at verses five to seven. And Lot went with Abraham, also his head flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there arose strife, conflict between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Abraham goes to Egypt because of the famine, looking for more resources. You know, I'm, what I lack is resources, so what I need is resources. If I get more resources, I'll be okay. And he was willing to sacrifice a number of things to get those resources. Well, in, in a sense, he's found those resources that he was looking for. He's rich. He has lots. Shouldn't this signal the end of all of his struggles? He solved his problem, right? This is, this is going to be all good from here on out. His prosperity has not solved his problems. It has just shifted them into a different area now. Verse 7 points out that because of their abundance, there is a threat of civil war in the camp. There is trouble in paradise, as it were. He and Lot have so much, so many animals, that they need to find pasture and water for and all these servants, that the herdsmen who are caring for these flocks are nearly ready to go over, ready to go to war over who gets what spot. The land can't sustain all of them. So what we're meant to see is that there, there's another dark cloud hanging over the reality and fulfillment of the promises. At first was, Abraham, you're going to get a great land. There's famine everywhere. Abraham, you're, you're going to be a great nation, but there's division in the camp. How can I be a great nation if I can't even get along with my nephew? Abraham fled Egypt in search of greater resources, and he found them, but now he's realizing they do not fix all my problems. 
Think about this in our own lives. It's the job of an advertiser, every time an advertisement comes along your path, to convince you that if you get what they're selling, you will be better off than you are now. And let's be honest, advertisers are really good at their jobs. Here's a couple ones that I was targeted by this week. If you get this piece of technology, your life will be more efficient, more up-to-date. If you get this newest health supplement, your colon and your gut will never be cleaner. If you buy your kids this latest toy, your children will love you more and be happier. If you subscribe to this newest streaming service, your life will reach heights of entertainment that you never dreamed of. These, I mean, these are facetious, but they're all real advertisements that came across me this week. Each of them was targeting me by trying to arouse desires of discontentment. You, you don't have what you need, but we do. In its own way, it's trying to convince me that I am missing something and they have it and I need to get it. Things would be better if you had this, if you had more. What's the key to smothering those desires of discontentment that often ignite in our own hearts? Well, let's remember the complete inadequacy and insufficiency of stuff and the complete adequacy and sufficiency of the Lord. Stuff is always insufficient to do for us what only God can do. Again, stuff is not inherently evil, not inherently good, not inherently neutral. But money and possessions, though they can be used as wonderful resources to to thank God and to serve others, they make horrible saviors. They do not ever deliver what they ultimately promise. They always fall short. But the love and provision and grace of the Lord is always sufficient for us. The person who is content in the Lord is never poor. But the person who is never content with earthly possessions is never rich. Contentment is something that you will never find in a thing. It is only found when we place our hope and our trust in the Lord. And when we're content in the Lord, we never lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So we need to recognize the inadequacy and insufficiency of stuff. Well, fourth, To properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to value people more than stuff. Need to value people more than stuff. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. So conflict is now facing them. You you can't avoid it. They have to do something. Well, whenever conflict and strife arises, it's as if you stand at a fork in the road. To the left, let's say, is the road of peace. And to the right is the road of conquest. Okay? The road of peace demands that we travel by humbling ourselves, that we make sacrifices, and that we look to the interests of others as more important than our own. That's how you go down the road of peace. Well, then the road of conquest requires that the traveler never surrender, take no prisoners, admit no wrong, and seek victory at whatever cost. Which road is most well-worn in in your life, in your conflicts? I I have ruts so deep in the road of conquest that I just need to put the car down and go. But here's the key. Which path we choose to take when faced with a conflict 
is determined by what we value most. If we're going to go down the road of peace, we, we have to have a different set of values than we would if we go down the road of conquest. So on the scales of value for Abraham right now in this conflict are either the harmony of his relationship with Lot or his personal right to all these possessions and his enjoyment of them without Lot getting in the way. So Abraham could easily have said to Lot, his nephew, who's, who's been allowed to tag along. Lot doesn't have to be there. Abraham's let him come along in this caravan. He said, listen, you little punk. Did God say he was going to bless Lot or Abraham? That's right. I forgot. You would have none of this if it weren't for me. Don't let your whiny herdsmen forget that. If I was willing to sacrifice my wife's well-being, don't think I won't do the same to you. <laughs> kind of like the godfather kind of thing. In a sense, he could have said that. He could have said something along those lines. Like, God has blessed me, not you. You're only blessed because of your connection to me. But he doesn't do anything of the sort. Again, we're on this like roller coaster with Abraham. Last week, he says, say you're my sister and all it'll be good for me. Now he's willing to, to let go of things for the sake of Lot. He considers the strife over all their stuff not even worthy to compare to the value of the relationship that he has with Lot. What does he say at the end of verse 8? For we are kinsmen, we are family. That is the value that is, that is dominating in his heart right now. We're family lot, and our relationship is far more valuable to me than all this stuff. In our home, all the time, we, we're always saying when, when there's a fight, what's more important, your sibling or that Lego or that scooter, whatever? It's, you're always having to help people make value assessments, stuff or people. And because you value relationship more, he considers Lot's interest as more important than his own. And he says, Lot, let's, let's not have any more conflict. You get first dibs. Pick whatever you want. Even though I have a right to it, I'm going to lay those down and I'm going to serve you instead. In the scales of value, peace and harmony and relationships with people are always more valuable than money and material possessions. The false god of materialism would tell you the exact opposite. It would try to convince you that possessions Money are more valuable than people, and therefore you should use or sacrifice people in order to feed your love of possessions. It's the false god of materialism. But the scriptures, the true gospel, says people are always more valuable than possessions, and therefore you should always be willing to use or sacrifice possessions in order to love other people. Always be willing to let them go for the sake of others. So, so which value weighs heaviest in, in your heart? Use people to get stuff or to use stuff to love people? To properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to value people more than stuff. Well, fifth, to properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to value our spiritual well-being more than our stuff. Another, another value judgment needs to be made. What's more important, people or possessions? And then here's the other one. What's more important, my spiritual well-being or increasing my material well-being? And we see this in Lot's decision. So Abraham has humbly said, Lot, I'm going to look to your interests. You, you choose what, what part of the land you want. And now Lot has to make a determination. How much is it worth? At, at what cost? What is most valuable, my spiritual well-being or increasing my material well-being? Look at verses 10 to 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, 
like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so Lot looks up, he evaluates, he's, he's seeing, and he looks and he sees you know, this glittering, glowing land over here. And he says, that looks nice. That looks really nice. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abraham becomes in this text, in a sense, a, a model of godliness, whereas Lot becomes a model of foolishness. And there's, there's a number of indicators in the text that show Lot is making a very foolish choice. The first is the fact that he separates from Abraham. He should never have agreed to separate from Abraham. He should have said, you know, Abraham, if all this stuff is causing the strife, let's, let, let me get rid of this. I, I need to stay with you. You're the one that God gave the promises to. You're the one in whom the blessings of God are found and through you to all the nations of the earth. I'm not leaving your side. He should have understood that the principle of union with the man that God has chosen. God chose Noah, and so your connection with Noah was what preserved you. God chose Abraham, so your connection with Abraham is what blesses you and preserves you. And yet Lot says, you know, I like how that looks over there. I'm gonna go over there. He should have never agreed to cut himself off from the man that God had chose to pour his blessings out on. Then the other foolish indicator is the direction he travels. This is very interesting. In the book of Genesis, so far, every time someone journeys east, it's always bad. Go west, go west, okay? Now, again, there's nothing inherently right about, you know, if I live west of you, it doesn't make me more righteous than you. There's other reasons why I am. So, so you caught that, thank you. In verse 11, what does it say? Lot journeyed east. So, so far, every time someone goes east, it's a sign of moving away from the Lord, moving away from life and blessing into something else. So Genesis 3:24, Adam and Eve are sent away east from the Garden of Eden. Genesis 4:16, Cain flees to the east after murdering his brother. In Genesis 11:2, before the Tower of Babel episode, they journey from the east and then set up that tower, that construction project. So he goes the wrong direction. He leaves the man he should have stayed with and he goes the wrong direction. And then the clearest indication that he made a poor choice is the location he chooses. Location, location, location. <laughs> he chooses to live near a city that the text is very clear is known by reputation, undeniably, to be a wicked place of sin and ungodliness already at this time. And so Lot does the opposite of what Psalm 1-1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now it's, it's not about location in the sense that if, if you go live in New York City, you'll be less righteous than if you live in South Florida. That, that probably will happen, but it, it's not necessarily the case. But the point here is he knows their reputation and it does not deter him from going near there. And what happens with Lot eventually is he sets up his tent near Sodom. Then later you find him in Sodom. And then later you find him sitting at the city gates of Sodom. He keeps moving directionally further and further away from the Lord. Well, what drove him to make such a poor decision? It's that he was not looking with eyes of faith, but he was looking with the lust 
of the eyes. The scripture is called the lust of the eyes. He falsely assumed all that glitters must be gold and it must be good for me. You can see even the, the way the text describes, he looks, he saw, look, look how wonderful that is. It must be good for me. When we evaluate things by the lust of the eyes, it means that we're analyzing things according to our appetite to please ourselves rather than to please the Lord. When you, when you put on the lens of the lust of the eyes, you're looking out there and saying, what would please me most? When you put on the eyes of faith, you're looking and saying, what would please the Lord the most? As one author put it, the lust of the eyes is the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value and spiritual benefit. It's looking and saying, look how good that looks without asking the question, is that good for me? Two different questions we need to ask. It is a love of what looks good to us rather than a love of what God has said is good for us. And, and we have a world that is constantly trying to put on your eyes the lens of the lust of the eyes. Keep looking, look how good this is for you. Look at how this will please you. And that's why Psalm 1 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. The word of God is what gives us the lenses to look with eyes of faith. What would please the Lord the most? So Lot failed the test of prosperity because he didn't value his spiritual well-being above increasing his material well-being. Well, finally, to properly handle the test of prosperity, we need to fix our hope on the Lord rather than our stuff. We're always in a constant battle for where is our hope found? Where should we set our hope? What are we going to anchor our hope in? The difference between the Abraham that fled to Egypt in the previous passage and the Abraham who handles the strife of this situation so well and this prosperity so well is what Abraham does at the beginning and the end of Genesis 13. Genesis 13 begins and ends with Abraham fixing his eyes and directing his heart toward the Lord. He begins by calling upon the name of the Lord, by going back to the place where he met the Lord at first. And then he ends in Genesis 13, 18, by building another altar, commemorating the promise again, calling upon the Lord again, fixing his eyes on the Lord once more. What he should have done when the famine hit was call upon the name of the Lord. He didn't do it, but he learned from it. And what he does with all this abundance at the beginning, he first goes and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And he does it again. This is, this is why the act of worship, both, both privately and both corporately as a congregation, is so important. We constantly need to recalibrate our hearts and reorient them to the things that are of eternal value, the things that are most important. It's one of the things where when we avoid these things, when we neglect these things, our, our hearts don't just sit there in neutral waiting for us to re-engage in those things. It goes different directions. And, and it's this activity that is a constant recalibrating, reorienting occasion for us. It's, it's so good for us to do this, to have that habit. That's why I'm convinced of uh, the presence of that commandment to set aside a day for, for rest and worship is God's not only gift, but his wisdom. You need to set aside something so that you can recalibrate from everything that went on the other six days. Well, the Lord speaks to Abraham in these closing verses, and he's reminded that his hope is in God and not in his stuff. Look at all the I will statements in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. 
Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Oftentimes, our, our treasures, our, even our talents, can entice us to shift our hope off of the Lord and set them on these things. Look what I have, look what I can do, I'm okay. But the Lord says, cling to me, I'll provide for you. I'm the one who makes and keeps promises. I'm the one who does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Cling closely to me, hold loosely to everything else. But how sad it is to admit how often our eyes shift from the Lord to looking for or at other things, whether it's ourself, our stuff, what we don't have yet, what we need. If, you're, if we're honest with ourselves, our hope is rarely ever firmly rooted in the Lord, but hops all over the place from this to that to the other thing. It's, it's jumping around all the time. If we're honest with ourselves, we fail the test of prosperity over and over again. We value stuff more than people. We desire it more than we desire the Lord. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we are like those who set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches rather than on the God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. And this is precisely why we need the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Rich in the ultimate eternal sense, not materially, but we received in him a treasure above all treasures, namely God himself. He has reconciled us to the God who provides us with all things. He has reconciled us to the God who gives us everything we need and more. Jesus is the only person who has passed the test of prosperity and done so perfectly. He goes into the wilderness and he immediately faces a test of adversity. 40 days without food, without bread. And then Satan comes and he gives him the test of prosperity. Look at all the kingdoms of this world. I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And he says, no, because he values something far more than what this earth offers. He values the glory and honor of his father and he values pouring out grace upon grace upon sinners like us who fail the test of prosperity over and over again. And then he goes to the cross. And when you, when you see him on that cross, emptying himself, pouring out his life for you, shedding his blood for you, giving up everything, so that when he dies, he is literally stripped of all of his last earthly possessions and saying, I love you more than you love your earthly stuff. That's why I'm here. When you see Jesus on the cross loving you like that, it will shift your love from stuff to the Savior so that you will love the Savior and be able to handle your stuff properly. That's what we need. We need the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we fix our eyes on Christ, we can say, God has already richly supplied all of my needs. I lack nothing. And when your heart is gripped with that reality, you will be able to hold loosely to every earthly possession because you're clinging tightly to the Savior. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, bring us near the Savior and his cross and let us see that all earthly gold is just but dross. Let us know the one who is worthy of all of our affection, all of our joy, all of our worship. And let us cling so tightly to him that we hold loosely to everything else. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, in response to this word, we've heard about the test of prosperity. Let's sing this prayer about handling our earthly possessions. Take my life and let it be. Let's stand together and let's sing this on page 9 and 10 of your bulletin.